So just before we start, I wanted to remind you, if you've not already done so, to please subscribe, rate and comment on whichever app you're using. It really helps to get the podcast listened to by more people. Also, just by recommending it to one other person, this makes a massive difference to our numbers of listeners. Thank you. That's it. On with the podcast. Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? (laughs) Well, maybe my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. (laughs) Well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine, And I'm Stephen and we're really excited to welcome our guest today. As I'm sure many of you, if not all of you listeners know, Lloyd Evans is an ex-Jehovah's Witness activist and advocate with a huge YouTube channel. He's also a filmmaker and the author of two books, The Reluctant Apostate and How to Escape from Jehovah's Witnesses, and from time to time, a host on the Atheist Experience. Lloyd, welcome. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. So, Lloyd, um, you were born in as a witness and you got baptised at 11. And in your book, you say, unsurprisingly, that at such that young age, you were completely convinced that it was the truth. Um, I just wonder if you could start by telling us about when the doubt started and how you kind of coped with that. Yeah, so I think it's chapter two or three, might be chapter two. I I title it The Page Turning Pioneer um, because I was pioneering when the doubts began. I was appointed uh, about 18 or 19, I think, and around the same time they also made me a ministerial servant. And then the following year, I think it was, in 1999, it was the God's Prophetic Word District Convention, and a book was released called Pay Attention to Daniel's Prophecy. And I was very, very excited because this was a book about prophecy and about the last days that had been released at a time where I was now old enough to understand it and you know, it it felt like it was being written for my generation, right? And I wanted to get a head start in devouring its contents so that mm. I could, um, I could be in the know when we were talking about it at the Kingdom Hall. So I I took it home and I absolutely devoured it, and for the very first time in my life, it was a, a visceral kind of feeling of fear, um, because for the very first time in in my life, I found myself not agreeing with something that had been written by the quote faithful slave because the explanations of Daniel's prophecy which interestingly I've been unpicking in the latest JW broadcasting rebuttal because it's more or less the same stuff that I ran into um, the explanations just didn't make sense Mm -hmm. and were in effect shoehorning 
um, the Jehovah's Witness history into uh, vague predictions made in the book of Daniel, which actually weren't predictions. They were history written after the fact, if you refer to scholars. So it was reading these pages, really. And because I was so scared about registering any sort of apostate thinking, I actually didn't even write kind of like um write anything bad in the margins because I was preparing it for the study. Mm. I actually folded the page, hence page folding pioneer, because that was my that was my way of registering that I didn't agree with what was on this page. And if anyone found my book, all they would find would be folded pages and they think, oh, this is a bit <laughs> odd. So that's how scared I was. And that was my very first experience of effectively disagreeing with the religion of my upbringing. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, the next question I was going to ask you was, um, you know, when I started to have doubts, I was very conscious of what I had to lose um, if I did start to examine these doubts a bit closer. And that sounds like is, you know, exactly the same thing that you're you're thinking ahead, thinking what does this mean and, mm. you know, what, what does this mean for me? And I guess, yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's an existential thing, isn't it? Mm. You, you, you know that you're ver you're very aware of the fact that you're not allowed yeah. to disagree, yeah, and that there are potentially life-ending <laughs> ramifications to <laughs> not agreeing. You know, because when Armageddon comes, irrespective of whether you are seemingly towing the line, you could end up on the wrong end of a fireball just for not having the just for not having the right quote-unquote heart condition you know yes. yeah, yeah absolutely yeah that's something i remember you saying about a lot when we've talked is the like fear of thinking <laughs> um so always mm. being like on alert in your own head of yourself um and just yeah what that must do from a young age to your brain it's yes, um, it's a good point isn't it yeah yeah i think stephen hassan talks about thought stopping doesn't he in his in his books um um, and I, I definitely did that. I don't know about you, Lloyd, but I just didn't want to think about those sorts of things. So I would try and... Well, yeah, they they have a song about it in the Book of Mormon musical, uh, Turn It Off, because <laughs> unsurprisingly, there are the same methods and yeah. tactics used in different groups, and, and they, they make fun of it in the Book of Mormon musical, mm -hmm. you know, just turn it off like a light switch. And yeah. the JW equivalent is called Waiting on Jehovah, uh, you, you have to again just basically bury everything and wait on Jehovah to either um, either click either clarify things through the organization or, or change the organization's mind in some way or uh, help you to see that this is actually the right thing so in other words the problem if you don't understand it or you don't get it the problem is most likely going to be with you so the best thing to do is to just sit on it, bury it, and eventually maybe you'll be able to fix yourself so that it makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and that's something that you did really, isn't it? Um, you know, in your in your book you talk about, um, I guess, just after the death of your, your mum, you, 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 you kind of buried those doubts and you, you tried to put everything into being the best witness you could. You went to ministry training school and so on. I did, yeah. I, I really threw myself into it, um, partly due to the loss of my mother when I was uh, 21 years old. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, when 
you lose someone uh, who's close to you in the religion, um, the way you're trained to think of it is, well, I'll see them again. Um, they're not quite dead. They're still alive in God's memory. And mm. if I stay close enough to the organization and if I do all the right things, I'll be there to welcome them in the paradise earth when they get resurrected because they're mm. going to just, they're just going to pop into pop back into existence in a field somewhere. Um, not quite knowing where they are. And then yeah. I don't know, wander in a, in a direction and finally find their way to me or, or to my family. So I need to be there when they, they kind of wander out of the bushes and, mm. and, um, and, and the only way to be there is, is of course to be, the best Jehovah's Witness I can be. So, yes, I threw myself into it. I went to ministerial training school when I was 25, and I was appointed an elder at the age of, I think I was 28 at the time. So there's a there's a bit of jargon in the um, ex-JW community, isn't there? Um, there's uh, a number of acronyms. There's physically and mentally out um, is one of the the kind of terms that, that people use. Would you say that, that was you or did you manage to um push those doubts so deep that you felt you really did believe it or i'm quite curious about how you kind of would describe that that period well pimo for me means that that you are properly mentally out you properly know that it's a cult yeah and you're just kind of pretending to believe in order to make your situation with family members etc more tolerable that was not that did not describe me i I did believe I just had doubts that were being very, very well and actively suppressed to the point where I can remember one of the questions on the uh, application form for MTS was do, and I'm paraphrasing here, do you agree with all of the publications of the faithful slave to which I, I lied. I, I kind of consciously lied and wrote yes. Right. Um, so I wasn't Pimo. I, I was just uh, I was just trying to juggle lots of doubts that were going on in my mind, and I forget what the other question was. Well, that, that that was it, really. It was yeah, how was you okay. how you kind of manage that um, and how you yeah. describe yourself. I mean, obviously, you deal with a lot of um, people that are Pimo that are um, physically in but mentally out, and some of them actually uh, contribute. Um, stuff documents and so on don't they um so you get some scoops before the the witnesses do themselves um i i don't know whether you've got any insight into to people that are going through that but i i just struggle to understand how you you can kind of manage that have you got any thoughts about how anybody can manage to to limp on in that kind of condition well with great difficulty mm. and um you know you allude to material we're talking really about leaks aren't we Mm. i've had uh all manner of leaks and you know i'm obviously not the only one who's receiving leaks by the way i think for a number of years now we've been getting elders letters through the shepherd book um various manuals that are members only or you know eyes only um i'm at the moment able to you know get some quite sensitive material through from from a Bethel insider. Mm. And my experience is that um, be, people in this position tend to kind of come and go because quite understandably, let's say you are in Bethel 
and you're Pimo, you're you're awake, you realize that you're in a cult. Mm. Well, being in battle means that you are literally on a daily basis surrounded by people who uh, expect you to believe as they do, and mm. you're having to literally devote your life. Um, I, I think it's safe to say six days a week, because I think they get they at least get Sundays off, but they're probably expected to do something on a Sunday as well. But let's say six days a week, you're you're committed to perpetuating a system or an organization that you no longer agree with. And, and that is obviously an untenable uh, or unsustainable situation for someone to be in. So what tends to happen mm. is that someone will approach me and say, you know, I'm in Bethel. How can I help? Oh, well, you can get me some videos or you can get me this or that <laughs> and it will it will go on it will have like an expiry period because okay. there will re- there will reach a point where the person just needs to get out for their own mm. sanity it's yeah. ju- again it's just not sustainable to expect someone to be in that situation indefinitely absolutely yeah and um, for those listeners who are maybe not familiar with some of the terminology bethel is the um, the sort of headquarters isn't it where they I suppose traditionally they did all the printing and so on. Um, less printing now, more filmmaking, I suppose. But um... filmmaking, uh, translating, mm. um, burying child sex abuse uh, information—that's <laughs> mm. mostly it. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> uh, one of the questions I, I like to ask um, our guests is um, if there's a moment when you can put your finger on and say that was a moment that I knew I was no longer a Jehovah's Witness or that I was going to be leaving um mm. I, I remember i had one of those moments did, did you i did but it was it was it was uh, it was a, defi- a defining moment but i wouldn't say it, I, I was fully there it was mm. very much a journey and even when i'd reached this realization there was still a long a long long way to go in terms of my awakening uh, and fully realizing what mess I'd gotten myself into. Well, I hadn't gotten gotten into it. My parents had gotten me into it. Um, but I, we moved to Croatia, and, and the the real the real issue probably that woke me up was moving to Croatia and was finding myself in a situation where I was in a different country where the meetings weren't in English. And even though I told myself and told my friends that I was going to learn Croatian and I was going to make a success of it. You know, you don't just learn a language overnight and there's always going to be a transitional period, which turned out to be indefinite in my case, because I'm still not good at Croatian. (laughs) Um, But I was sat there in the meeting and the talk was, the talks were being given in Croatian and it was just noise for me i obviously couldn't understand that there was mm. just the occasional word that i registered but mm. mostly it was like the uh, scenes in uh, charlie brown uh, where the, the teachers in the classroom and you say that's what it was like and obviously in that vacuum of mm. of um stimulating information I kind of reached into the recesses of my mind for something to think about. And Mm. lo and behold, there was this pile of discarded um, doubts or buried doubts um, that I had to revisit. I didn't have anything else that I could do. Mm. And so I was sat there just revisiting all of these doubts and thinking, you know, I, I I don't think... 
I agree with this, you know? And then one day, I I think, I, I can't remember whether I was actually ill or just so desperate to get out of attending the meeting that I pretended to be <laughs> ill. In any case, I think it was a Sunday morning and I stayed behind from the meeting. And I thought, you know what I'm, I'm going to do? I'm going to take a piece of paper and a pen and I'm going to write down everything that I don't agree with about my religion. Right. And it ended up filling the page. There were nine things in total that were areas of significant disagreement, most of it to do with doctrine, most of it to do with theology and uh, prophecy and that kind of thing. Nonetheless, it was a list. It wasn't just one thing. It Mm. was nine things. And just by virtue of going through that process, that exercise, it in a way freed me because it's like, ah, the fact that I've been able to commit a list of things, I called them my nine grievances, a list of grievances to paper shows that I am not actually a Jehovah's Witness. Because if I were a Jehovah's Witness, this would have been impossible for me to do. Mm. You know, if I had mental doubts, they would have stayed in my mind. They wouldn't have actually been realized in the physical universe Mm. in the form of words on a page. So that was probably my biggest kind of wake-up moment. Although, again, it was a gradual process and there was still a lot of waking up to do. Because I think at that point, I was still thinking, okay, well, even if it's not Jehovah's Organization, I could never be an apostate. You know, I could never actively turn people away from it. That would be evil, Mm. you know? Mm. So there were lots of kind of... (laughs) um, there were lots of uh, doors that I had to go through, and that was that was a big one. But it yeah. it, it was it was just one of many, you know. Sure, uh, Celine. I know you've got a few questions that you want to uh, to put to Lloyd. Um, watching your like um, story on YouTube, you've talked about. Um, I was thinking it's interesting hearing some similarities with um, Dad talking about when he was like already having doubts for a long time, like even up to your um, when you were gonna going to get dunked <laughs> you were waiting and thinking oh god i'm going to do this well probably not oh god that would be bad <laughs> but you're thinking oh i'm going to do this and i'm not even sure what mm, i'm going to do it um so it went then that was from being like 16 so obviously that mm. it's a long long process but um mm. you know mum uh was pregnant and you were like i'm gonna have to i'm gonna finally have to make a choice now um like you know it'd been happening for a long time but you'd you're like i'm gonna you thought about just sort of trying to scoot on by, having your regular calls um, and just, you know, not bringing anyone new in, but not creating any sort of, you know, waves. But then you're going to have a child and you thought, well, I'm going to have to teach this child something. Um, did you go through that as well, Lloyd, having a bit of a process of like, I'm there's going to be a little person that looks up to me and I'm going to have to tell them what, what I what I believe was that part of the process for you, or are you already you're already there. Um, I think that there was some overlap between my um, initial waking up and um, and either trying for a child or or Deanna actually being pregnant. So I think it was more in terms of if I, uh, if if I'm honest, I think it was more in terms of the fact that. 
I'd woken up or was or was waking up and very well aware that I was exiting uh, a religion that my wife was in and in fact that my wife had married me with the expectation that I would always be a Jehovah's Witness in fact one of the things that she said early in our relationship was I love you Lloyd and the only reason I would have to ever stop loving you would be if you stopped loving Jehovah and I remember that being something that she said very early on in our relationship so when I was first starting to wake up it caused me uh, quite a significant amount of trauma because I was in a relationship and I didn't know whether I would be staying in it um and if I did stay in it I didn't know what would happen if we had children and I was so uh traumatized and so stressed by the whole thing I didn't get diagnosed at the time but I I think that I had something approaching a nervous breakdown Hmm. I just remember being in my bedroom for like a full day or several days perhaps and just doing everything I could to be unconscious because it was so intoler- intolerable. Hmm. The, um, I mean, when you're when you're seriously, seriously contemplating divorcing your wife, and it got to the point where I, w- I think I was even messaging my dad at home, saying, "Dad, I think I might need to come and live with you." For- Bear in mind, I wasn't disassociated at this point. Dad, I think I might need to come and live with you for a while. I think Deanna and I might be might be separating. I th- I, yeah, that, that happened. That happened. Mm. And um, those are very, very stressful mm. situations yeah. to go through. Um, I think that um, Deanna became pregnant when we'd reached a point where even if she wasn't necessarily fully awake herself, she she'd already started down that road. So there wasn't any doubt when we were expecting Jessica that Jessica would be raised as a Jehovah's Witness. We knew she wouldn't be. In fact, if anything, it was expecting Jessica that forced our hand to the point where we felt where both of us felt that we needed to disassociate because we felt that if we tried to fade because I was still doing my activism un- under cover at that point under a pseudonym I was a cartoon called John Cedars who <laughs> who wrote a blog on jwsurvey.org someone had done a cartoon that looked a little bit like me but not much mm-hmm. and um you know that was really for my wife's benefit really because I I already felt so strong um fairly early on in my activism that I wanted to just ha- be done with it and disassociate. But I kind of lingered on in an- in anonymity for my wife's sake. But when Jessica was um, well on her way, it just became crucial, I think, that we, that we formally sever ties because what we didn't want was a situation where our believing um, relatives, specifically Deanna's parents, or indeed my father, um, tried indoctrinating our child, uh, claiming, oh, well, we're, I'm only doing what you should be doing. You know, sure. uh, We wanted to have essentially the freedom of speech, to coin a Jehovah's Witness term. <laughs> we, we, we wanted to have the freedom of speech to say, 
actually we've separated from this and we're the child's parents and we get to decide what the child gets taught so mm. yeah that was basically how that happened but that's a very good question you've made me go into some places I wasn't expecting to go <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm gonna need therapy after this episode. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean have you got anything more like that I'll take us some rest. Um, <laughs> no I mean uh, you've, you've got a few other um, yeah. questions you were you're going to ask haven't you I mean do you have opinions on on fading in terms of like because obviously you felt it was really imperative you needed to in order to protect um you know your right to how your child is brought up do you think there is um do you yeah do, do you have thoughts on fading retro retrospectively or do you mean the the dilemma of whether to fade mm. or whether to disassociate? Yeah, because I guess that's I, always a question yeah. you're faced with upon leaving. Yeah, I look um, the the only the only way to answer this question is to say, you know, whatever works for you, uh, because mm. everyone has their own circumstances, and no particular no one no one should be judged for dealing with things the way that they need to deal with them at the pace that they need to deal with them. Um, all I would say is that um, there are problems with fading, and I think faders know about all these problems. But obviously, when you are fading, um, there's huge expectations for you to at least hold a candle for the idea of returning one day. Mm. Um, you are still considered beholden to the rules of the Jehovah's Witness religion, so that even though you don't believe anymore, you've got to at least pretend that you believe. And you've certainly, you're certainly not allowed to do anything uh, that would uh, incriminate you if it came to the attention of, of the elders. So if you are doing anything, if you are in, let's say, a sexual relationship whether where you're not married, you'd have to be sneaking around um, as a grown-ass adult, um, pretending like you're some teenager that this isn't happening which is many find an, an untenable situation, especially if, if you're in a relationship with someone who's never been a Jehovah's Witness and doesn't understand anything about cults and finds this all incredibly silly. Mm. Uh, what you mean? Why? Explain to me again why you won't introduce me to your parents. Um, oh, it's complicated, you know. Mm. So mm. There, there's, there are, there's a whole bunch of issues that come with fading. And again, faders will know about these you know intimately um i think from a mental health point of view once you are ready to sever ties and that's a that's a big if um depending on how close you are to people inside but once you are ready i think there's a lot to be said for you know just taking ownership of who you are as a person and and saying screw this you know this is who i am and if people won't love me for who I am, then I'm not interested in having them in my life. And when you're able to reach that point, it's incredibly liberating. It's very stressful to begin with. It's always stressful, no matter how you leave. Um, but it, I liken it to a birth. You know, births, I'm told, are painful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the end product is very agreeable, you know? Uh, so that's what disassociating is in, in, in effect. Uh, it's like a rebirth, isn't it? And mm. 
once you are reborn as your authentic identity, um, I think that there are huge advantages in terms of mental health. But that's to, to not to in any way denigrate those who, for whatever reason, need to fade. They need to manage things more slowly or at a pace that's um, not quite like that. Mm-hmm. Can, can I um, ask you a couple of questions about your second book, Lloyd? Um, you, you've written a book, How to Escape from Jehovah's Witnesses, and, and I guess that follows on from that discussion, really. Um, you talk about how to do that and I know you're quite keen that people plan carefully and think it through take their time and um, can you tell us why you think that's so important well it kind of says a lot about Jehovah's Witnesses that a book exists mm. on Amazon called how to escape from Jehovah's Witnesses because you would think it would be as simple as just saying oh I don't want to be a Jehovah's Witness mm. anymore. I think I'll leave. Oh, I've left. Oh, there are no ramifications. <laughs> mm. But, you know, it turns out that there, there can be ramifications. And specifically, there are ways that you can leave, or as I've put it, escape, um, where you can do it wrong. Or you can do it in a way that, in hindsight, you wouldn't have done it. Because it can cause a, a tremendous amount of damage. Mm. Um, so that's basically why I've written my book to just walk people through all the various permutations and make them aware, for example, that, uh, if you have any sorts of doubts and you have your, your friendly local elder, uh, notices that you haven't been attending as many meetings and wants to come around for a coffee. Uh, you either need to stall them, not have them round for a coffee, or if they do come round for a coffee, not feel bad about telling them exactly what they want to hear, even if it's not the truth. Because these are men, I've been one, these are men who first and foremost answer to Watchtower. They are Watchtower line managers. They're never going to favour you over the organisation. And if they spot something or become aware of something, they will not hesitate for a moment to do what the organization expects of them, even if it means making you extremely miserable. Hmm. So just things like that, really. There's a whole chapter on why why you need to be wary of elders. There's a chapter on uh, protecting your privacy on online and through emails and social media and that kind of thing. There's a chapter on pursuing uh, professional uh, help um there's a chapter on exit strategies and again you, you wouldn't it, it says a lot about the religion that you need to go into it in yeah. this much detail i do actually intend to do second editions of both a reluctant apostate and the escape book fairly soon because uh, one thing i've learned in my nearly 10 years of activism in fact this year's my 10th anniversary um one thing i've learned is that i'm aiming at a moving target because the organization is just moving is just changing so rapidly mm. that you know what i write down on a piece of paper about jehovah's witnesses now won't be necessarily true a week or two from now um so there's actually a, a few things that i need to update in the reluctant apostate and in the escape book i wrote it with the 2010 shepherd book in mind and not the more recent version which is going to be a real challenge because they literally update that every six months so i'm gonna have to put 
heavy disclaimers in the new edition to say this thing's changing literally all the time but this is what it said at time of publication you know so the shepherd book is the um the, the handbook that elders have to decide how to deal with all of these um pesky people who are asking too many questions or or um any other issues that crop up in the congregation how to deal with um abuse survivors who mm. who could be willing participants apparently that's what it says in the shepherd book mm. and you know how to basically micromanage the lives of the congregation mm. so yeah it's all in there book of horrors mm. um one of the things that i'm particularly interested in is you mentioned it already actually identity um so i'm i'm um as you know i've just finished my master's and um i'm still doing some research with the, the university on um on how Jehovah's Witnesses leave and then try to construct their identity. So I'm particularly interested in talking to people like you and me who are born in, essentially. Hmm. Um, a lot of the publications I read about cults and so on, there's a lot of assumptions that most of these people have come in, um, drawn into a cult. But in my experience, obviously, for people like you and I, um, we kind of don't have an authentic identity to go back to unless we construct it. So I'm kind of interested in that whole area. How how would you kind of, do you identify that with that? And do you have any thoughts about how you manage to make sense of who you are when you, when you leave something like this? Yeah. Um, look, I think, I personally think that we're changing all the time anyway. So it's really... Uh, you know, I call it, it's easy to say authentic identity. You know, what is what is your authentic identity? What would your identity be if you'd never had Jehovah's Witnesses in your life? Um, maybe that's something that we need to strive for. Well, I don't, I'm not sure I'm entirely in agreement. I think mm. that uh, our identity, there isn't really such thing as an authentic identity because our identity is constantly, constantly in a state of flux depending on the experiences that we go through in life. Yeah. And those experiences change who we are so that I am, for better or worse, a different person than I would be if I'd never experienced being raised in the Jehovah's Witness religion. And if a version of me existed that had never been in the Jehovah's Witness religion, that person would not be me. Mm. They could have my DNA. They could have my um, boyish good looks. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but they wouldn't be me. Um, you, you need, you know, our, our experiences, positive and negative, our memories shape who we are. So mm. I think that when it comes to figuring out identity it's worth remembering that identity is just a, in a constant state of flux or at least that's my experience as someone who doesn't have a master's and is just mm -hmm. figuring things out by thinking about them yeah I mean it's really it's really interesting because that is I think much closer to um our um best evidence if you like in terms of mm. understanding what what identity is and I, I kind of feel like a lot of the things that are taught about around um, recovering from cults is a very simplistic idea around, you know, replacing the cult self with back with your authentic self and so on. And mm. um, that's 
in my studies, that's not how we see I things. I don't know really. what the base programming would be or what it would look exactly. like. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And and one of the interesting areas is the um, the fact that part of our identity is is a construction through stories. So we kind of tell a story about ourselves um, to ourselves and to other people. Um, and that's how we, we kind of create this feeling that we have a, a constant us, if you like, because it's a story, it's a narrative that starts from the moment we started to think about ourselves, our self-awareness to now. Um, I think one of the, the challenges when you leave an organization like that is it can feel like a real break and for me, one of the um, efforts I, I think I was trying to, to make, and, and I guess others too, is to try and build a kind of bridge between our past self and our, our current self. So it makes sense. You know, we're still the same person, um, but we behave differently. And, you know, I, I guess that sounds like what you're saying in, in mm. many respects. Yeah, I, the, or the way I put it is reconciling ourselves with our past. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that we can, you know, manage those memories um, without them having a negative or detrimental effect on us. So we can yeah. take ownership of the fact that we did all of these things and we wasted years or perhaps decades doing something that was a complete waste of time. Um, yeah. But we're no longer consumed by feelings of bitterness or, or anger. I mean, it, anger is, in my view, um, it's inevitable when you mm. go through a traumatizing or abusive situation, but what you don't want is for the anger to control you to the point where you become abusive or traumatizing towards other people. Mm. It needs to be yeah, kind of contained almost so that you're channeling your justifiable feelings mm. of uh, anger in, in a constructive way. Yeah, I think that's, that's really good advice. Um, would you, describe yourself as very different i mean i guess you would um compare and contrast how would you see yourself now or describe yourself now compared to the lloyd i don't know 20 years ago 15 years ago whatever yeah i i am different in in ways that aren't easily explainable in you know using the cult dynamic um Mm. Bizarrely, and I, I don't think this is just me bigging myself up. I think Diana would say this as well. Bizarrely, I'm more generous. So when I was um, a JW, including right up to when I first moved to Croatia, I was very, very, um, I wouldn't say greedy or selfish, but I wasn't I wasn't very um, accommodating or, or generous when it came to my time or resources, and especially when it came to money, I was incredibly stingy. And I think part of that might be the fact that I'd spent a number of years uh, broke, first of all, as, as a pioneer, but also I was obviously much closer to my dad, and quite frankly, that's what my dad's like, you know? <laughs> He's a bit of a penny pincher. Um, and since moving, since not just moving to Croatia, but also freeing myself from the organization and I guess putting distance between me and all of me and who I was as a Jehovah's Witness, it's had the, um, the effect of completely changing what I'm like when it comes to um, money and, and gifts and giving and that mm. kind of, I, I just, 
I just don't care anymore if 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 we go for a meal and someone doesn't have, have enough money to pay for their meal. I'll, I'll pay for it. Fine, mm. no problem. Mm. I, I, I like it. it. Gives me pleasure. To, mm. to, and that's something where I liked to think that in theory I was kind and generous as a JW, but in practice I wasn't. Whereas now I find that the giving comes more organically to me than it did when I was a JW. And, and I'm not sure I can fully explain mm. it, that all that using J, the, the, the cult dynamic, but that is one mm. area of my personality that I think has, has noticeably changed if you were to ask my family. I guess when when you leave, all of your own actions are your own again. So you get, mm. you know, it's your choices and um, it all matters in sense of like, if you if you went from believing that you're just sort of doing this life and so you can get to you know paradise then mm. those sorts of things don't matter they they can go by the wayside i suppose and those small pleasures you get from those things aren't as important but mm. when you leave they get to be and you get to find joy in those yeah things. and i think as well when you are in that kind of black and white uh, system you have to account for everything mm. everything must be accounted for in terms of your time and your resources. Mm. Um, it, there was a JW Broadcasting, I think it was the, the month before last, or in, in the last few weeks at least, where Sam Heard was like, you know, is your best good enough? Are, are you are you giving your best to Jehovah? And mm. can, you, can you reduce mundane activities? Mm. And as I said in my rebuttal, we need our mundane activity. We need to be taking a nap in the afternoon mm-hmm. and mm. going on the PlayStation for a while and, and doing a Netflix and chill evening. We absolutely need to be doing that. It's not healthy to do the opposite, mm. where every waking moment has to be accounted for. But that's the mentality you have as a Jehovah's Witness, that everything has to be accounted for. And I think that that kind of fed into my attitude to, in other areas towards money and that sort of thing to the point where if we did go to the restaurant and there was an expectation that we'd all foot our own bill and someone couldn't, I'd feel as though they were taking advantage of me in some way, which is mm. absolutely not how I feel now. You know, <laughs> it's almost like, Oh, brilliant. Now I've got an opportunity yeah. to, to do something for someone, you know? Yeah. So it, it's strange how these things, how everything kind of is interwoven and, mm. and you know, something as simple as leaving a religion. I say simple, um, it can have knock-on effects in ways that you, you didn't expect, you know. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, can I talk to you a little bit about your activism, Lloyd? Um, I'd rather not. You... Uh, but no, <laughs> <go on>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, So what what are you doing this for? What's your, what's your purpose as an activist? World domination, essentially. <laughs> no, um, it, it's strange how it's all happened. I suppose it all began again 10 years ago with um, going on forums and I remember at one point I was writing fairly lengthy forum posts that people could comment on where I was in writing dissecting a a certain Watchtower article Hmm. because I remember in 2011, um, which again was 10 years ago, um there just happened to be in just a short space of time a series of very very dodgy articles coming out like there was the Stephen Salma domestic violence um article uh, i think that was one of the first 2012 articles there was 
um, the mentally diseased in you know notorious July fifteenth, twenty eleven mentally diseased article. Mm. It just felt like almost back to back. You know, the the organization was releasing a whole bunch of stuff, and I drew immense catharsis from going on forums as it, I was simply called Cedars on this particular mm. forum, and just you know explaining point by point why this stuff was was wrong. And that kind of morphed into me doing blogging initially for uh, a website called JW Struggle, which I think is still there. And then I set up my own website with the help of a friend, John Hoyle, who reached out to me and he said, um, you know, I noticed you need help with this. Um, I make websites. Do you want me to build you a website? <laughs> and I'm like, what? This total stranger is. Uh, so he built jw survey which is now of course jw watch and so i was blogging on um, on jw survey and i think because you ask why do you do it i i mm. think that the those early days or those maybe first two or three years were mostly about catharsis you know it's i've been through this incredibly traumatizing experience i've had my entire sense of reality turned on its head and I need to document this in a way that's potentially helpful for other people who might be going through the same thing. And that was very much my thinking in those early days. And to be honest, it still is, but not in the same way. So I think with most activists, I call it the two-year burn. There's like a two-year burn mm -hmm. on on most activists where they'll be uh, churning out YouTube videos or Twitter posts or what have you. And then they'll reach a stage where they're like, you know what? I'm done with this. I've, yeah. I've, I've said my piece and now I'm going to ride off into the sunset. And that tends to be, in my experience, how it works with activism. Mm -hmm. But not always. So sometimes um, an activist, not just me, there are others, will develop a, a following or a platform where... It's like, actually, not only have I derived catharsis from this, but I'm seeing the effect it's having on others. And I think I've got a bit more gas in the tank for this, mm. especially if I can maybe get a community who can rally around me and and urge me on. And that's what's basically happened. So that now I have um, over 800 patrons who have made me, who have allowed me to turn this into a full-time job. Uh, to the point where I can hire someone to edit my videos, which is an, an immensely freeing thing so that I can just focus purely on the creative side. You guys know what it's like editing a podcast, you know, mm. uh, imagine a, a two hour mm. uh, yeah. HD uh, rebuttal. Mm. Um, incredibly draining stuff. But when you are getting the support, um, it's more than just a job, you know. It, it's something that you... It may not be catharsis necessarily, but it's immense job satisfaction in, I would imagine, a similar way that perhaps a doctor or surgeon derives satisfaction from seeing that they're, you know, assisting people with their health or even saving lives. I'm not suggesting that's what I'm doing, but it, it, it's seeing, again, positive effects, you know, almost in real time mm. so that you know, I, I'll upload a video and I'll watch the comments coming in and I can see that people are, are connecting with it. I can see that people are, I can see that my material is resonating with people and helping them in some way. 
And from that point of view, uh, YouTube has been an incredibly satisfying uh, platform for doing activism. And I, I never imagined that it would be because, again, I started off doing blogs. I, mm. I started off as a writer. And um, John Hoyle, who set up my first website, it was the Candace County case in 2012, June 2012. And he said, Lloyd, he said, um, I noticed there isn't really anything on YouTube about the Candace Conti case. Mm. And this is a huge deal. You're good at videos. Why don't you make a video? So I was like, oh, okay. okay. Uh, I was still anonymous at this point. So I, I wrote a script and I got a friend of mine who was an XJW to narrate it. And oh. I just did like a montage of stills, basically. And that was one of my very first videos the Candace call the Candace Conti lawsuit explained I think it was called or something okay. like that and um and that was when I was still um anonymous but then when I um disassociated myself I could I then instantly actually it was before I disassociated myself I started vlogging wanting to disassociate knowing that by virtue of vlogging I would be disassociated because they would find me and it took them I think mm. a couple of weeks yeah. After my first vlog went up for for me to get the phone call yeah. saying, Lloyd, we need you to come for a heresy trial or, or, or words to that effect. <laughs> so that was yeah. how I got into yeah. activism. And, and that's basically why I do it, because I, I can see benefits yeah. from it. And it's very oh, I, you enjoyable. Know, yeah. Everybody we talk to, your name comes up. Um, you know, sometimes in that, a good way. Yeah. yeah <laughs> something that's really helped them. So, yeah, you definitely. Um, are helping so many people. Um, I guess one of the things that I um, wonder about um, is, you know, you, you spend a lot of your time in the world of Jehovah's Witnesses. You're watching their videos, you're reading their materials, you're, you know, you're following their, their logic and so on. And uh, how does, how do you manage that psychologically? Um because I know, you know, even just watching a lot of, if I'm watching a lot of videos, yourself and, and others maybe, there might come a point where I think, do you know what, I need a bit of a rest from this because mm. it's kind of too hard. Mm. Um, but you've you're you're kind of in it as much in a way. You're you you're doing as much research as the average publisher, mm. probably more. Mm. Um, how do you manage that psychologically? With difficulty. And I think probably a lot of experience because I've been doing it for so long now. I think my my skin has uh, um what's that what's the the word that they use when you're a guitar player and callous. Yeah, I think callous I've become calloused mm. so mm. that I can sit through um an hour's JW an hour of JW broadcasting and I'm watching it, but I'm watching it in my own way, you know? Yeah. I'm yeah. watching it in terms of how am I going to convert this into a rebuttal rather than purely being entirely outraged by it? Hmm. Um, so yeah, I think it, I think it's just a, a case of having done it for so long now that I'm, I kind of develop my own kind of mental defenses, uh, my own mental way of processing what I'm, what I'm watching and what I'm seeing. So that even though I can, I'm, I am consciously being triggered, hmm. it's not too overwhelming and I can kind of muscle my way through it. But Another thing that we've started doing in the last year or so is um, quite often it's possible to produce transcripts. So some of the videos that get spit out on JW.org 
have uh, subtitles embedded in them. And um, it's possible from that to actually create an entire transcript. So, for example, much of the 2020 Always Rejoice, I actually created that by first making the transcripts. And actually, this stuff is easier to uh, sit through when you're not sitting okay. through it, you're just reading it. Reading it, yeah. Because okay. you, you, one of the irritating things about these videos, of course, is how slow they are. And mm, yeah. It takes them forever to uh, to say something. And there's lots of mm. pauses and lots of drama and what have you. If you're just literally reading the word on it, you can get through it far more quickly. And, okay, so here's my talking point here. Yeah. All of this yeah. isn't really relevant. Oh, here's another talking point. You know, and... and Doing it that way was kind of revelatory. So um, we're already looking at doing it the same for the That's 2021 convention. Yeah. Mm. Uh, one of the things that I, I guess helps um, or may help um, is uh, reading your book. I think um, that the first part of the book, particularly, there's some hard, there's some tough bits in the book, obviously, but the earlier part of your life, you're, you're, there's quite a lot of humor in your book, actually. And mm. um, I, I sense that that's kind of a way of um, overcoming some of the, the difficulty. So I guess you, you're quite happy to identify some of the humor in, in being a Jehovah's yeah. Witness because it is a bit crazy, isn't it? I think it's one of those things where there's that saying, if, if you don't laugh, you'll cry. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and another thing I think is that cults hate to be laughed at. They, they, yeah. they want, they desperately want to be taken seriously mm. and by laughing at this stuff when it's warranted and quite often it is warranted especially if Stephen Lett is hosting an episode <laughs> um it's very freeing isn't it it's very mm. freeing to respond to this stuff by just mm. laughing at it mm. and um the the thing is so much of this propaganda material is being churned out by utterly deluded minds who who have very little self-awareness and very little awareness of how this stuff translates on the outside. Yeah. So th they're basically doing my job for me. I mean, they're, they're, they're serving up a, a rich bounty of comedy material on a plate <laughs> with everything they spit out these days. So... It, you know, I, w I would be remiss in my job if I if I didn't oblige and uh, and, and deliver the punchlines when when needed. You know, so absolutely. You know. I remember showing Celine Pillowgate um, the Pillowgate video. I don't. Yeah. I, I, we hadn't talked about it that much up until then because I I've only recently started to engage with the the community. Really, I've been out over twenty years, mm. but I've just kind of kept myself to myself and get my head down but um started to watch your videos and that was one of the the earlier ones i, I watched and showed it to celine and um well, yeah i can't like, remember what you said i don't know it's just perplexing wasn't it to watch but i remember it's like things i remember starting when you're starting to show me because you were just laughing i remember coming down once and you and mum had your ipad out and you're sitting there with a glass of wine just laughing hysterically i was like what's so funny and it was this man talking about tight pants and i was just like what is happening what is this well, yeah, it, I mean, it is ridiculous. Um, well, Pillowgate was so ridiculous that most Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, won't have seen it or, or yeah. shouldn't have seen it. It was mm -hmm. This was, again, leaked material that was only supposed to be seen by Bethelites. But again, it's just a perfect example of, um, of what happens when deluded minds put propaganda together. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in a, the way I liken it is, you know, any, any student of World War II will tell you that they reached a point 
uh, in the campaign against uh, Hitler's Germany that the Allies realized that they should stop trying to get Hitler assassinated because he was more of more use to them in his mm. role because mm. he was losing the plot, you know, mm. for whatever reason, whether it was the drugs that his doctor was giving him, whatever, he, he was making terrible decisions and it was of more use to the Allies that he, he remain in power so that they could win the war more quickly. And that's how I think of the governing body, that they are so deluded that they're making my job easy. I mean, mm. especially the likes of Stephen Lett and, and Tony Morris. Mm. Um, I, 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 it would be a bad day for activism if Tony <laughs> when or when Tony Morris dies. Let's not say yeah. if mm. when Tony Morris dies. I know he thinks he's going to be rattling around forever <laughs> drinking McCallans, but when he dies, it will be a sad day for activism because, you know, the, uh, new JW Broadcasting episodes won't have the same thrill when I'm opening them, you know. <laughs> yeah, for anybody that's not sure what we mean by Pillowgate, just check out um, Lloyd's video. It's um, it's a kind of, uh, it's like an initiation video for young brothers going, or young witness males going to Bethel, isn't it? And um, women. And women, oh, of and course, women, yeah. yes, that's yeah. right, to uh, avoid the, um, the terrible sin of masturbation. Um, or flirting. You're not allowed to flirt yeah. either. Mm, just so, look uh, down uh, don't look up until you're married <laughs> there's quite a lot about wrong use of bed linen as well hence yes. the name pillow gate hence pillow gate yeah, yeah. um okay so um i, I guess we're, we're i'm getting closer to my questions um running out and we've been going nearly an hour so um, i guess we're we're kind of getting close to yeah. to the end is there anything else Celine, you wanted to i've got a couple of questions um, i wanted to ask but um yeah well i was just gonna say as well do you so obviously a lot of the videos are for people um that are going through the process of leaving or you know you know can be catharsis and things like that um do you also are you also hoping that people that don't know about the witnesses that just think they're like the strange people that knock on the doors see them as well um to understand a bit because i think people don't I know a lot of my friends are like why don't you why don't you talk to some of your relatives or like why why can't they do xyz thing and i'm like oh you just it's a lot to explain i haven't done a poll recently i keep meaning to do a poll because one thing that you can do as a youtuber mm. is you can run a poll mm. to ask your viewers various things and i did do this poll once where i wanted to find out how many of my viewers were jw's former jw's and people who've never been jw's and i think mm. um the the ones who'd never been jw's if not being half of my audience were maybe even a slight majority. Well, mm. I, I think that that actually accounts for most of my viewers, if not half of them. And I think that, that it is precisely because, you know, most people are sadists and <laughs> quite enjoy watching a train wreck or, or a train wrecking <laughs> itself in slow motion. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that there'll, there will always be a quote-unquote market for watching batshit crazy cults and the stuff mm -hmm. that they get up to, um, especially when it's clearly not stuff I'm making up because people need only, under normal circumstances, mm. step out on the street and there are the carts. You know, they can, sure. can they know that it's actually there and it's real. It's not... Mm. So, so, some of this stuff, I mean, you, you literally couldn't make it up, could you? You couldn't make up mm. Pillowgate, certainly. No. Um, you know, the, the, the best minds in Hollywood couldn't dream up some of the stuff that Tony Morris and his pals have been spouting out over the last couple of years. So uh, I, I think that's why 
many people find it compelling because mm. this is real life and it's mm. having a real impact. And and yeah, people like a good train wreck. Yeah, yeah. People always do want to ask, don't they? Like, mm. um, off like friends and family, friends and stuff that don't know about it. They all they're always very very curious about. Mm. So yeah, it it is mm. something that's behind closed doors to a certain extent. So. It's one of the best kept secrets, I think. Um, mm-hmm. the, the the damage that cults can do. They're 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 kind of operating in broad daylight, but so few people understand remotely what's going on and and how damaging and how corrosive and how silly most of it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the if the average person learned about Beth Sarim, for example, and mm-hmm. you know, it's it's right up there with Joseph Smith and his golden plates, isn't it? Um, so this is the luxury property that Rutherford had built um, in trust for when yeah, he, Noah he, and Abraham in the deed, in the yeah. deed, he wrote down that <laughs> King David could have it, and Noah could have it, and uh, Solomon could have it. Were they to turn up, how how what on earth Preserved. he was expecting that to look like? You know, some dude just rocking up in San Diego saying. I believe you're not. You're not going to believe this, but hear me out. <laughs> I am King David. How would you prove it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, here's my house. You know, but that 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 was the actual teaching. And, and again, it's right up there with. Oh, I found some golden plates. This, <laughs> yeah, you know, actually. actually, no. Trust me, I found the golden plates. I've since lost them, but yeah. don't worry. With the help of this hat and stone, I'm going to tell you what was on them. It's right up there with all that, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, okay, so a couple, more, just a couple more questions, Lloyd, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so I guess stepping back for a moment, um, thinking about society. I mean, this leads on from from that, really. What what should society do about groups like Jehovah's Witnesses, high control groups, cults? What how how should society think about, treat these sorts of groups in your view? I think that they need to go completely back to the drawing board when it comes to their legislation. I'm obviously not against banning groups like Jehovah's Witnesses. I've been very vocal about that when it comes to Russia. But you cannot have a situation where, for example, uh, you know, there's a compound in Chelmsford that keeps a database of known mm. predators, and they're not, and they don't have to hand them over to the police. You, you just cannot have that. So you're and not you're not for banning them. No, I'm you, not. I, right. I think that they. I think one of the reasons why so many ex Jehovah's Witnesses are for banning them is because what they're looking at is an organisation that's just clean getting away with it. They're not right. being held accountable in any way, shape, or form, yeah. because. At the moment, I, I was explaining all this recently on a podcast I did for the National Secular Society. At the moment, there's immense deference to religion in society mm. in general. And yeah. we're seeing that across the spectrum. So our, our, our current society has almost coded into its DNA, respect religion, yeah. give it a wide berth, don't interfere, let them get on with things. And that's that's the approach that society takes to religion. And mm. in that context groups like Jehovah's Witnesses are just going to run amok and ruin people's lives because they know they can get away with it. So Mm -hmm. that's why I think uh, legislators, people who are far better educated than I can ever aspire to be, need to get together, 
have, hold inquiries, hold think tanks, whatever you want to call it, but they need to draft legislation that makes it impossible for cults to get away with uh, ruining people's lives in whatever way, shape, or form that may be. And obviously, there's a you know there's a whole list when it comes to Jehovah's Witnesses, but I'm sure there are even more creative ways that other groups manage to uh, be evil to people and ruin people's lives. So all of these things need to be basically blocked off so that it's impossible for for cults to ruin people's lives in those ways. Okay. Um I, I know you're um you're you're an atheist. You you appear on the the atheist experience. I've seen you on that a couple of times, I think. Um and uh you talk in your book about the the trying to define cults and religions and and you kind of see them um as the same on on the same dimension essentially just different extremes is that still how you kind of yeah it's not the most popular of views i realize but the the way i describe it is it's like it's almost like a spectrum and um you know you know what is a cult you know a cult is some guy or some group of guys or some group of people saying we have special power that comes from a supernatural source. And based on that, here's what we want you to do. Now, it's conceivable that you could have a group of those people or one individual uh, in a long-standing organization or a long-standing um, uh, belief system where the beliefs are almost entirely benevolent or entirely unintrusive. So the the, the teaching could be, you know, our almighty being commands that you don't hurt anyone you know and so that could be an entirely um an entirely benevolent belief system that doesn't lead to any actual harm but what's happening is you're still teaching children assuming that the group wants to procreate you're still teaching children things about the universe that aren't right Mm. so even if it's on a very very small scale you're still creating some kind of harm and that's why I personally, I mean, I'm very careful when I use the word cult because it's a very loaded word and it's a pejorative yeah. and people get all upset when you hear when they hear it, especially if it's about their cult. Yeah. Um, but I, I personally think that there is such a thing as soft cults and extreme cults. Mm. And I think most mainstream religions, I think of most mainstream religions as soft cults. Mm. And I think of religions that, you know, ruin people's lives as extreme cults, basically. That's how I mm. see things. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, cool. Okay. Well, I, I found that fascinating. Is there anything, Celine, that you wanted to ask before we let Lloyd go? Yeah. I mean, the only one is just like, if you just wanted like, just a nice question at the end, really, which was just, because um, I just think it's all, it was exciting when we started doing um, like Christmas and birthdays, because I kind of remember, because mm. although I wasn't, um, you know, raised in it. We didn't start doing all of that straight away because there's bigger fish to fry um, mm. as you start leaving. But I remember like um, having a, a birthday party for the first time and that was so exciting. I dressed up as Hagrid, didn't I? You did. It was Harry Potter themed <laughs> and dad was Hagrid and it was marvellous. Um, it was really good. Um, and like having a tiny Christmas tree and now, you know, levelled all the way up to, you know, big real tree. Um, mm. But, you know, that's all really exciting. Did you... Um, find that really exciting being able to start doing that as well or uh, <laughs> if, if this is supposed to be like the trevor mcdonald kind of and finally you know nice story at the end i'm not sure yeah. it's where where you it's were expecting okay. me to go it's okay. um but um 
it's, it's Christmas has sort of been ruined for me, if I'm going to be completely honest. And um, if if not for the fact that I have two small girls, I can f- fully imagine myself just kind of bypassing it entirely, or, or just making a couple of tweets here and there, and sort of pretending that I'm celebrating it, and but mostly not, and not bothering with all of the tree and decoration. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's it just doesn't have that magic that I expect mm-hmm. it would have if you'd been raised with Christmas in your life. Um, but one thing that both my wife and I are determined uh, about is that we're not going to let our children um, have their childhoods ruined in that way. Mm-hmm. So we're going to throw ourselves behind it. And actually, um, even though Christmas has been ruined for me, and I think to some degree my wife, we do still get some enjoyment from it because we get to see the enjoyment from our children mm-hmm. and, and the way that they throw themselves into it. It's interesting how... Uh, Julia, our youngest uh, daughter, she's now two, but even when she was um, really, really small and had literally just started speaking, and I say speaking, just kind of mimicking words, mm. um, we ha- she, we ha- she had her first Christmas and she was screaming at the top of her lungs, it's Christmas, you know, and <laughs> and and, um, and copying the some of the uh, Christmas carols on the on the TV and it's almost like Christmas has been designed with children in mind to just hook into what they innately like you know mm. which is you know to feel special and and mm. for there to be you know uh, an atmosphere of, of giving and generosity and support and decadence um that's kind of what kids like anyway so yeah I I, I derive uh pleasure from uh from seeing their enjoyment um but when it comes to almost all holidays um including to some degree i have to say birthdays it's not that it's just not the same as it would be if all of those things hadn't been ruined for me as a, as a child yeah. but i but i do my best um <laughs> Uh, if you want to end on a positive, I do my best with it all. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, as someone that like has Christmas because um, parents left, we're we're grateful mm. <laughs> as the kids that it's it's, it's a really gift you good. give to your kids, yeah. isn't it? In a way that the Christmas itself is mm. is a gift. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I sort of feel that way. Yeah. Okay, mm. brilliant. Well, Lloyd. You've been so generous with your time. Um, uh, you're incredibly busy, man. You've got loads of things to do. You've got to watch more videos and uh, sink yourself into all of that again. So, um, Boxing world domination. It, it's exhausting, all of that. I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> but I've really enjoyed doing this, so thank you for having me. Lloyd Evans, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. What Should I Think About is an Evil Sheep production. <laughs>